So first of all, I'll say if anybody said one thing you need to have, you need to have like a sassy environment now. Welcome to The Wrap, Resourceive as a Podcast. I'm Nick Cressy, Managing Director of Strategic Partnerships, joined by our President Kyle Hall. This podcast will feature conversations with guests ranging from industry thought leaders to private equity operators and technology innovators, all with an aligned focus on delivering business outcomes. Whether you're an operating partner at a private equity firm, a CIO, or other business leader, tune in weekly as we share insights from the expanding playing field of digital transformation. Today, we're joined by James Morrison, National Cybersecurity Specialist of Intellisys. Have a great conversation. We even talk a little bit about his background, super interesting background coming up in the FBI and then being there in a time where, you know, as, as he references it, the emergence of the modern cyber criminal. So pretty interesting. He understands a lot about organizations and individuals that are out there targeting companies. So really interesting to get his perspective. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to The Wrap, James Morrison, National Security Specialist at Intellisys. What's up today? Oh, you know how it is. You know, four-day week doesn't change the amount of work you got, so <laughs> it just compresses, right? How about it? Yeah, we're talking <laughs> about a little travel later this week, so that's good. Thanks for taking some time. We're really excited to talk to you. Mainly, we're going to be talking cyber, probably from a macro perspective, but give the listeners a little background about yourself, because I think you have a super unique perspective, judging by, you know, you're a veteran and FBI, so don't let me speak for you. You tell them. Hey, you know, I mean, no. so yeah, I mean, I've, I've been doing IT about 34 years now. I, I was kind of an early adopter for the generation, taught myself to program back in the 80s, like a lot of us, because we all thought we were going to be gamers, right? That was the world. And I got lucky in that, you know, when I got, when I realized I could be a professional soccer star and a gamer, I, I, I joined the Air Force and the Air Force was looking people, looking for people that had sort of that beginning technical skill, you know, in the 88, 89 timeframe. And I ended up in networks. I ended up in, you know, the doing AFNET and MILNET, which now we call the internet, right? And did a lot of that early work, did some system administration, finished a degree in engineering and said, wow, you know, what am I going to do now? And bounced around, went to a Lockheed Martin, did a little network engineering there, and then ended up in the FBI. And it's a weird story and people laugh at it, but I answered an ad in the paper. They were looking for technical people. And and I, I came in a little different. I wasn't an agent. I wasn't a gunslinger. I came in through the information technology side of the house, did system administration, system integration for the bureau, did systems engineering, kind of moved up through that side of the house, did the radio sites and SWAT callouts and crime scenes and sort of the, that, the job we don't think about. And then in 2012, Director Mueller at the time recognized that there was this changing cyber landscape. We had seen some interesting attacks in 2010, the Stuxnet, and then the Saudi Aramco. And he said, you know what? We need to bring technologists into our cyber squads. He opened up a brand new job for the cyber task forces. And I was one of the first 20 brought in as a computer scientist. And I'm a certified ethical hacker. So I was, you know, got trained on all that kind of different side of the world. And initially, we were watching people that back then, we, it was all classified, you know, Russia, China, Iran, you know, we were, we were at a high level matching up against their hackers and, and trying to help defeat infrastructure attacks. But then it changed. In 2014, really, that the Home Depot and, and the eBay and some of those big high profile attacks, we started to see a different group, the criminals, rising up. And we shifted. We had about 100 computer scientists at that point in time, and we started shifting and recognizing that we've got to 
get in front of ransomware. We were trying to really ramp up. And so we would capture ransomware, deconstruct it, and then actually help put alerts out of what this ransomware was doing. But it got faster and bigger than us. And so ransomware, as it started to really accelerate through 15, 16, 17, 18, we realized that we had to do more about education. So I, I became sort of the lead focus for, I taught classes at Quantico and internationally. And then locally in my area in Houston, I was trying to train people, folks, this is real. This is coming. This is not something, this is not a joke. And, and unfortunately, I don't think people really listened. And so I left the Bureau in 2019. And I felt really discouraged because I felt like the Bureau wasn't doing enough. I really felt like, and we couldn't because that we are a law enforcement agency. And I'll tell people that you call law enforcement after a crime has been committed, right? That's just the nature of law enforcement. And, and so we weren't able to get ahead of it. You know, we weren't able to educate people and start getting technology deployed. We were going to fall behind. We were going to find, and, we, and I felt like we have. So I, one of the things when I came over to IntelliSys earlier this year, if I, I'll tell, and I'll tell, I meet people with all the time. And I say, you know what? It's not necessarily about which specific technology. 95 to 98% of groups that are hacked today have a firewall, they have an endpoint solution, and they still get hacked. So the question is, it's not about any particular silver bullet technology. It's more about how is it put in your world, right? So, so as a technologist and, and, and really passionate about cybersecurity, I found myself just wanting to talk to people and evangelizing and saying, listen, this is real. And I think we're getting there. The cool thing is I think we're there. I think people recognize the need. They'd have no idea where to start. There's 3,800 cybersecurity vendors out there, and they have no idea which, which one to call and which one to pick up. And I think that's where we're seeing some, some traction, I guess. Yeah, which leads me to my first question, I guess. So how do you, when you're talking to IT leaders, business leaders, shift their thinking from reactive to proactive because what we hear a lot out in the market is you people almost kind of lead with fear and that's not necessarily what you want to do when you want to drive adoption right i did that four or five years ago i'll be honest i was probably one of those fear mongers right i mean i was out there saying "Ooh, these big bad guys are going to come get you but what i realized is i think the time for that has passed i think now it's the time to say let's let's talk about why why do you why would you implement something technology wise and so the story i've started to tell is 1972, my dad had a Ford Falcon with no seatbelts. And we bounced around the inside of that car when he went around corners. We blew all around there. Well, what happens later in that, you know, in the 70s? Insurance companies come up and say, "Uh uh-uh, you have to have car, you have to have seatbelts. And then we saw airbags. And now we've seen rear cameras. And so my belief is that the first question I ask everybody is, do you have cybersecurity insurance? And they'll be like, well, yeah, of course I do. How long ago did you renew it? And it's usually two to three years. And what I'll say is like, go back to your insurance provider and today say, what would you need to do to get insurance today? And I believe that the insurance market, cybersecurity insurance is going to drive conversations forward into deploying the technologies that people have always avoided. Things like multi-factor authentication, things like endpoint protection. Things like having an MDR service or a SOC as a service. Because the insurance company, as they gather enough statistics around cybercrime, they're starting to realize what technologies are actually effective at stopping the bad guy or at least mitigating the attack. 
And I think that's why. And then the other thing on top of that now is privacy law. Just last week, we saw California Consumer Privacy Act have its first, I'll call it victim, but they fined Sephora $1.2 million for improperly handling data. Data handling laws like that are, there's like, I think there's 12 states right now with it, and it will continue to increase. So compliance and insurance are probably the easiest way to start a conversation because they are going to force change. Nobody's gonna, nobody, wants, nobody wants to spend money, let's be honest. Nobody wants to spend money on IT. They don't want to spend money on a firewall. They don't want to spend money on XDR. But if they have to, in order to have that insurance or in order to be compliant or complacent, you know, uh, you know, yeah, compliant, they're going to. And I think that's going to drive more of the market than anything. Pretty interesting, too. I mean, you know, the cyber insurance providers are seeing this at scale, right? They're seeing the claims. They're seeing a lot of things that aren't advertised publicly, yep. right? And then they're going in and doing forensics and having information about what was implemented, where it was implemented, why. And now driving that feedback back. I mean, in general, you know, if they're saying something should probably be implemented to ensure it, they're probably onto something because they're not trying to pay out. I mean, I, I heard that they paid about two hundred percent of premiums last year, which that is not the model that uh, <laughs> right. right insurance is built upon not being used. Let's be honest. I mean, car insurance is based upon I pay my fee and I hopefully never make a claim. And so, cyber insurance has been upside down. And, and absolutely to your point. They recognize that what works and what doesn't work. Now, I've had a benefit of being around a lot of hackers, you know, black hat, gray hat, white hat hackers. And most of the black and gray hat hackers will say there are certain technologies that if you deploy them correctly, they will prevent or at least slow down the bad guys, right? Bad guys are lazy. At the end of the day, the bad guy's lazy looking for a quick way to make money. Every step that you add in their hack slows them down, and therefore makes them less likely to be successful. So it's, it's, when we talk about you know, zero trust and some of the buzzwords that are out there right now, it's really defense in depth. It's really about making sure that they have to cut through X number of layers before they get to the good stuff, before they steal your corporate data, you know, and, then, and then turn that around and try to monetize it. Because it's all about money and how quickly can they get to it and turn it into a, you know, a payout. Yeah, I'm interested to know either from your from your time at the at the FBI or or any of your other background, how often is it that cyber criminals are specifically targeting you know a specific business versus you know call them targets of opportunity? It's interesting right now is that we're seeing a little bit more big fish hunting. So ransomware numbers are a little down right now, but because they're going for the bigger payout. What's also interesting is that we've seen this rise of this underground economy on the dark web and the initial access into a corporate environment is typically handled by a single person or a single company. They will exfiltrate all the data and then sell that access to somebody on the dark web. So, so let's say, for example, you know, you know, Marriott got hit. I can, I can beat on Marriott a little bit. Marriott got hit again. So the initial broker steals the data and then goes on the dark web and says, hey, I have access to a large hospitality organization. Do you want to buy it? And so somebody buys it. So now they're, remember, it's all about money. So they made money off stealing the data. Then they make money off of a criminal group that wants to then exfiltrate. So it's, it's much more random at that front end with certain differences. That we still see targeted attacks based around nation state funded criminal groups. You know, of course, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they have asked or d- demanded that some of those Russian criminal groups target particular infrastructures. 
a lot of the, especially in the small and the medium sector, they're usually swept up in a, in more of a random event. What are you seeing? I mean, what changes are you seeing on the, you know, on the IT leader side? Like what, what are they changing in their posture? Where do you see people, you know, more willing to implement where maybe they had resistance in the past? I mean, you're seeing across a very large spectrum of the market. I think the good news is, is I think I alluded to it earlier, they know they need it now, right? They're, they're, we're, we're past that part of it where they're like, okay, convince me why I need it. Most companies recognize they need something. The problem we see is that there are some companies out there that are very, very, very good products. And the companies will go directly to those companies and buy the product. Uh, whether it's an XDR solution, whether it's a firewall solution, maybe it's a network solution. There's big vendors out there that will sell it directly to a customer. The problem is then the customer buys it and they think they're buying like McAfee, right? When you bought McAfee, you just installed McAfee on all your all your computers and you just, I'm protected. An XDR solution really doesn't work quite the same way because you have to have some sort of management of it. You have to have some sort of, you know, kind of watching visibility. Same with firewalls. Great next-gen firewalls out there, but when a company buys them, they don't always buy the additional, oh, you want somebody to monitor that firewall for you? You want somebody to patch that firewall for you? And, and so they buy it and they plug it in and it just sits there and nobody watches, nobody, you know, so this is, this is the problem. And because IT leaders are always looking for a way to kind of cut that financial corner, they're putting themselves in a little bit more jeopardy, I think, from that perspective. So what, what I find what my job becomes more of is not necessarily convincing them that what they're doing isn't working. It's more along the lines of, let me show you a different way to do this that you know provides a different level of service, right? So people are using terms like white glove treatment. That's a very common term right now. But you need people need to get something back from whatever they buy. I think some of the days of buying technology and just plugging it in, leaving it in the data center especially with security. People want feedback. They want something that comes back to them, a dashboard, a report, something that says, I bought this person who's monitoring my stuff and this is how many times they stopped me from getting wrecked in that, in that time. Mm-hmm. So that's where IT leaders are looking for return on investment it, it, and, and a visible return on that investment. And just random aside, but you know, you're, you're talking about that model where you're always reporting back basically efficacy, you know, and Cloudflare has that email security product now, Area One, where yep. you can you can buy it, but only pay for every time where it works, you know, which is which is really interesting. So, you know, as you see the market move more and more to that, I think it that door that's cracked right now for basically pay for performance security, very interesting to see what's going to happen there. Yeah, I mean, like compliance, you know, we're seeing a lot more compliance as a service, right? So people want, you know, to, am I compliant? And how do I know that I'm compliant, right? So, and again, creating a dashboard that they can see where they're like, okay, you know, I'm, I have an 8.6 score out of 10 in compliance, right? And then what if I did this? What if I added this product or just, or remove this product? And that score modifies based sort of dynamically based around that. I mean, I was talking to a company today that was talking about doing pen testing constantly as a service, right? Or vulnerability scanning constantly as a service. So it's not like just buying a pen test, paying the $20,000, you get your report and then sayonara, see you later. It's how do I continually provide you a picture into your enterprise of, of what, because vulnerabilities, I mean, we saw this with like Log4j, 
a new zero day will pop up monthly. Let's just be honest. It's going to happen. You know, Chrome had one recently. They said, patch your Chrome browser. So your vulnerability can shift without any action upon your part as a, as a company. It can just shift because of the technology you have deployed in your environment. So there has to be a constant. And that's the other thing we see is most IT expenditures and security expenditures in the past were CapEx. You'd pay once a year, you'd buy a server, you'd buy a firewall, and then you'd wash your hands of it for a year. But we're seeing more of this OpEx model. This more of this, now it's a monthly expense. You know, now it's like, oh, in order to buy my firewall, I have to pay $175 and I'm paying on it, you know, for, and I think that that is another thing that's changing from, from IT managers. They're more likely to want to pay for that. But to your point, I better get something back that shows that what I'm doing is is helping me or has some actual effect in making me more secure. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's a sticking point, I think, as more and more vendors move to OpEx, because, you know, when you're doing that monthly outlay, you do really want to see some tangible results. And it is an area where when you really get down to brass tacks, the vast majority of providers are going to say, look, we're going to take best effort. We can have response SLAs, but we can't guarantee that you won't get breached, and we're not really going to take on any liability in the case that you do. Well, even like when I worked at HPE, you know, GreenLake was this thing they were doing from the cloud, you know, and they had the same thing of how do I change cloud expenditure from CapEx to, or, you know, yeah, CapEx to OpEx and provide a dashboard showing your usages. And it's, so it's, everybody's looking for that way of, of, I don't want to just throw money in a pit. So that's the, the good thing now is people don't want to just throw their money over the fence and hope that it's all good. The board is demanding more, right? So board of directors are actually in publicly held companies are saying, show me. You're seeing companies that are publicly held because of Sarbanes-Oxley. They have requirements that are, you know, you got to report to all your shareholders that what are you doing? So that's what I'm saying. We have, a, we have an evolving environment that's pushing more towards, I need to know my $4,000 or whatever I'm paying has value and it's doing something positive. A random aside as a second or third order effect of letting letting all your shareholders know your cybersecurity posture as a publicly traded company, you know, yeah. I, you know, I mean, definitely you want to make sure they're doing stuff, but you also kind of wonder, like, should you really be putting out all that information? Is it in the shareholders' best interest to put it out to everyone in that way? Not, not right, so sure. right. <laughs> That's a good point. Hey, pivoting a little bit since you are a, a network guy back in the day, anyway. Sassy is is upon us, right? So let, let's let's talk about this briefly. We've been talking about it for years with clients. Feels like it's finally getting some mainstream recognition. The CIOs that we're talking to, at least, what do you see from your perspective? So first of all, I'll say if anybody said one thing, you need to have you need to have like a sassy environment. Now, I guess when we think about it, you know, from a, a hacker standpoint, a hacker can't do anything unless he can move laterally or up the stack, right? He's either moving east-west to another computer or he's moving up to a server. Where he's got to touch is that network. And so I'm a huge proponent. We're seeing it kind of called zero trust network access. Some companies call it that or sassy, but I think it's it's the right way to start, you know, in the environment. When, you know, so back in my, when I was creating some of the early 10 base two networks and stuff like that, right? We were always trying to get the computers together because we wanted to share a printer or you wanted to share files or whatever it was. But now as we move forward in that, I need to control everything that touches. And it doesn't matter. Companies are worried of things like shadow IT, right? Big issue, shadow IT. How do I manage people putting stuff on my network? Sassy takes care of that. 
right? How do I manage IoT? Big, big problem with IoT traffic, you know, and so I just put a video camera on my network. How do I manage that? Well, it's got to touch the network. And if I can use SASE to manage every device, here's so we break it down. Every device needs to touch a service, right? I mean, you know, you know, and so if we can control what devices touch what service and actually manage every one of those, then the place to do it is at the network. So I, I'm a huge proponent of it. I think I and it's the first place I tell people to start if they if they come in with a blank slate. The other side of it is, which is kind of cool, is a lot of it's cloud-based now. So the end company doesn't have to manage all of those routers anymore and all of those switches. I can tell you in the bureau, that was one of our biggest heartaches was you know. Cisco would come back and say, oh, that router's no longer supported. We're not going to give you software updates. We're not going to do anything for it. So now you have to shift gears and say, okay, I got to replace those, those devices. Well, if I can take away that whole infrastructure argument from the, the, uh, the end IT, they can go off and do endpoint. That's all they want to do is endpoint anyways. They want to manage that stuff. So I think, it's, I think as people really start to understand it, most of the customers come back after SASE deployment about a year and they go, I don't know why I didn't do this earlier. It really is, I think, the right way to go. That's great, James. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of adoption there, most for for really all the reasons you mentioned. But I think the natural thing that comes up, I I think we'll start to see it driven a little bit more from the security angle. It has been from the hardware angle, yeah. You now where people are looking at it in that direction, but yeah, and that's why SD WAN was kind of the beginning of it. And I think SD WAN most people conceptualized it as, oh, I'm getting rid of my hardware, right? And, and as some of the real, as some of the SD WAN providers moved up that stack and they adopted technologies like CASB and, and, and different stuff into their portfolio, now I can take that same SD WAN employment and really put security on top of it. And I think it's, it's like icing on a cake. It, it really is a great, and then people go, wow, everything's kind of taken care of. And I get a report at the end of the day saying that this is all the stuff that stopped. And I, when an endpoint goes, I can just stop that endpoint. I can stop it right at my network. I can just chop that endpoint off and say, IT staff, go take care of that. It's, it's a, it really is a great way to deploy. Awesome. Well, look, we'll, we'll let you go on, on two quick hitters. We ask all our guests. The first one, what's one piece of tech you can't live without in your professional or personal life? Don't say your phone, though. <laughs> I was going to say mobility is crazy right now, right? It's hard not to say my phone right now. I mean, I, I don't want to say it, but I, I live on that, you know, video cameras and, and stuff like that. I mean, I think, you know, I've tried to get out of out of the house more, <laughs> you know, but I might change in a week. I, my Steam Deck, I just got my notified that the new, my new gaming Steam PC is ready. And I'm like, ooh, that might be my new favorite friend. I mean, I like some technology, you know, when I'm out on the road, get your mind out of the world and, and play games. So I'll, I'll, I'll say my, maybe be my Steam Deck in a couple of weeks. Good. All right. And then lastly, if people hang around this long, we like to make them a little bit of money. We used to anyway. What's one hot stock or company people should be paying attention to? We are not financial advisors here, but everyone knows of the Sentinel Ones and the CrowdStrikes. They've had pretty impressive IPOs. I guess not so great for Sentinel recently. Are there any new ones that we should be looking out for? Any that exist right now, like Palo, that that you might recommend people take a look at? I mean, CrowdStrike's been killing it. I mean, they they've been in the lead of this game. But it goes back to what we talked about earlier. Watch for the companies like Cato and some of the the, the software defined WAN companies. I think you're going to see huge deployments in that in that SASE environment. And if you look at some of the big acquisitions that we're seeing out of companies like HPE bought Silverpeak right a couple of years ago. 
most of the acquisitions are, are in that direction, recognizing that the network is the key. I think there's going to be a lot more adaptation in the, in the software-defined WAN and into SASE. So that's where I would, I would look at technology stocks. Yep, Cato and Cloudflare are two, right? I know Cato is still private, but yeah, and Cloudflare is interesting because you know they came out of that DDoS environment they're acquiring, and so when you see a company that's doing that way and really moving across that network portfolio, they're aggressive there. And I think Cloudflare actually just got added into our portfolio. We've got a, a directly, so we've got a lot of conversation with them as to what that looks like from from beginning to end. They're really embracing the channel, it sounds like. So we've had some some preliminary conversation with them. Really exciting how they're supporting it. Yep, absolutely true. Cool. All right. Well, thanks so much, James. This is great. You really brought the heat, man. Well, you know, I, I had to get some caffeine loaded up. Once the caffeine's going, it's it's a Monday on a Tuesday. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for carving out some time today. Absolutely. Thank you all for inviting me. That's a wrap. Hope you guys enjoyed that. As Kyle said up front, really interesting background. And I think James just hit it on the head with the pieces he was touching, especially Sassy, which we got into towards the end. Pretty timely conversation, Kyle. August 25th, an article came out, five years to zero trust. The Pentagon has no choice but to sprint towards network goals. So if the DOD is leaning into this, we already know some of our clients are. But I mean, it's here. It's upon us, right? Network security. You really can build your cyber framework from the ground up. And that's essentially what James is saying. Where are you seeing this in our accounts right now in our, in our client base? Yeah. I, well, look, I guess I would start by just acknowledging the size of project that the DOD is undertaking in that amount of time. You know, it's just, it's just crazy. It definitely makes the sizing of, you know, implementations for private sector companies really kind of puts it in perspective as you look at this. But back to your question, I mean, we're seeing a lot of discussions around this. And it's really because the the traditional network security model was heavily reliant on locations and, you know, is location-based often. And now, I mean, you have companies that are changing real estate strategy. You know, you're having a lot of different types of, I'll call it just endpoints broadly. And so as those networks are changing and becoming more dynamic, SASE really allows to be able to support that from an end user's perspective. So to get them, you know, access that they need while being able to be highly responsive to the dynamic nature and still secure it. So, I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of adoption and, you know, I think, I think it's mainstream, you know, two years from now, really. Yeah, I think so too. The adoption is is definitely taking off, and I think it starts with zero trust. He touched on it a little bit, but that multi-factor authentication, depending on the user and the device, and you know, just think about when you log into your your banking app, how it asks you for your your login, your password, your phone number, maybe your email. Right? If you're out of country and you try to do that same thing, it's probably going to flag your account. That's what folks are going to be looking for on their endpoint devices in businesses. So not a small pivot, not really even something that we've seen, especially in the enterprise yet. Forgive me, maybe maybe you have, I haven't. I'm sure there are the early adopters, but I think it's a trend that's worth following and, and even leading the conversation in the security front as we look ahead to 2023, 2024.
Yeah, I mean, look, I would say if you're if you're going through any type of network transformation around SD-WAN and you're not already looking at it from a SASE perspective, you know, I think you're probably kicking yourself a year from now when you're actually done with that deployment and, you know, all your peers are moving from SD-WAN to SASE. You know, like if you're a step behind on adopting SD-WAN, then you should probably make the leap to go full, right. full SASE right now. You know, I mean, if you did an SD-WAN implementation in the last couple of years, you know, you may add on some point products to try to build, you know, build a sassy like service offering, you know, for yourself that you maybe are managing parts and providers are managing other parts. But, you know, I really think, I think two years from now, this is mainstream. And so, you know, if you're considering that, you know, a sizable SD-WAN implementation takes anywhere from six to 18 months. If you're looking at, at a network transformation and you're not looking sassy right now, you, you're, you're probably kicking yourself a few years from now. Yeah, and to that point, measuring the ROI on a sassy deployment is challenging. So that's kind of where folks like us come into play and help build that business case, that TCO analysis. Because look, a lot of folks, a lot of, a lot of companies go to SD-WAN for the savings and the flexibility and the scalability, right? This may not necessarily be as much of a savings play because security rarely is, but there is an ROI to be measured. You have to be well-versed at doing that. Yeah, I think what we, what we see when we go in to do it is there's a lot of you know, things that you would put on the left-hand side of the equation that maybe clients aren't thinking about, you know, either point security, products. Sometimes it's consultants, right? It's somebody they've got in there as a cyber consultant or something, and you're going to roll all that into this new as a service model. So sorting through the business case, you know, as you have more and more call it functions within the SASE service, right? There are more legacy technologies or or maybe they're even just internal processes or procedures that are being replaced by this. So sorting through that is that's what we specialize in and also something that's unique in every single company to do it. Absolutely. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Thanks for listening to The Wrap, Resourceive as a podcast. For more information about Resourceive and how we are creating value for our clients, find us at resourceive.com or reach out to us directly at therap at resourceive.com.